Welcome to Book Tour. Two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. I'm very excited. It just dawned on really both of us. This is our first interview of 2020. Yeah, uh, and we're, you know, just starting the third month, so maybe getting off to a little bit of a slow start, but uh, 2020 promises to have, uh, at the very least, more interviews than we've had in any of the previous years, like in the last few years. Yeah, and if this episode, this interview, is any indication, um, we're off to a great start for this year. So um, if you want to hear about the book we're going to be talking about, go back one episode. We posted two episodes today, which is unusual for us. Um, But the book needed its own episode, and this interview certainly needs its own episode. So we're going to be talking to Alma Katsu. You can hear all about her book, The Deep, by going back one episode. And uh, I think that's pretty much it. I don't know if we have anything else to say. No, definitely. It's a, it's a great conversation about the book and, um, you know, just overshadowed a little bit by the wonderful conversation we had with the author herself. All right, guys, here it is, our interview with Alma Katsu. Alma, thank you so much for joining us to talk about The Deep and your other work. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited. Um, this is a great opportunity. Thanks. All right, so typically what we do when we've reviewed a book by an author and then we have them on is that we give them an opportunity to kind of talk about the book that they that we're talking about in, in their own words because we've just spent a lot of time saying what we think it's about. Um, but we'd like to give you the opportunity to, to pitch it the way that you see it going on. So would you mind uh, just really quickly telling us what The Deep is about in your own words? Sure. Um, well, you guys have read the book, so you probably know it's a little complicated, but so I'm going to stick to the main story. Um, and that is, and also if people have read my previous book, The Hunger, you know that these are historical fiction. They are and they aren't about the history. So this particular story, even though it's about the Titanic, um, it centers on a on one character, Annie, a young woman. She's from an Irish family of modest means. And you know, you know that she's run away from home, although the circumstances are unclear. And she manages to get a job as a stewardess on the Titanic, hoping for a fresh start. And there she meets the rich and famous. We all know there's a lot of rich and famous on board the Titanic, like the Astors and, the, and uh, Benjamin Guggenheim and William Stead, who was actually one of the most famous newspaper men of the day. But she finds she's drawn to one of the passengers, Mark Fletcher and his infant uh, daughter, Ondine. So shortly after the voyage starts, a young boy who's a servant of Madeline Astor, he dies mysteriously, and Maddie Astor is riddled with guilt, and she's convinced that something supernatural is responsible. Strange, unexplained occurrences continue to happen, leading up to the big tragic event that we're all very familiar with, that fateful last night on the Titanic. But the story isn't over. Four years later, Annie signs up to serve as a nurse on the Britannic, which is the Titanic sister ship, and it's been pressed into service as a hospital ship to bring um, British troops back from uh, the Balkans and the Dardanelles. And Annie's working as a nurse, and she's shocked to see Mark brought on board as a patient. She thought he had died when the Titanic sank four years earlier, and her feelings for him resurfaced. But then also the same mysterious otherworldly happenings start up again, and it forces Annie to confront um, her part in the tragedy. And that's it in a nutshell. It's a great nutshell. <laughs> yeah, it's very nicely done. I know my nutshells. 
so i'm sure i'm sure we're going to wander um in and out of the deep specifically but what draws you to writing historical fiction you know so that's a great question i i mean i love reading it and it makes me feel a little guilty because I feel like uh, these books sort of kind of walk the edge. They're historical fiction, but they're not quite historical fiction. So my background is as an analyst, and I worked in intelligence for a long time. And in intelligence, um, regardless of what people, some people like to say these days, we really hold the truth <laughs> very closely. You know, we really regard the truth. Uh, and so writing these stories that are at one time truthful and not truthful was kind of strange to me in the beginning, but I've really come to enjoy it. So, you know, I like kind of looking at what happened to history and, and tweaking the story a little bit to really maybe drive some themes to the surface. So I find this book specifically, and, and I know that nobody has heard our review yet at the time that we're recording this, but one of the things that was, that's, <laughs> Historical fiction for me, and, and I, I've dabbled in reading historical fiction, feels like an instant um, scene is set so that and, and this is not to shortchange the creative process, but the, the fact that, you know, we all know about the Titanic. And one of the things we talked about during the review is the fact that there's impending doom for the Titanic creates a feeling for us as we're reading the story that we wouldn't have necessarily if it was just set on a on a cruise ship that we don't know that we wouldn't find out until chapter 25 that that cruise ship sank. So it's a, it's always a nice familiar feeling for me to read historical fiction. So I, it's one of the things I enjoy about it. You know, it's interesting. Um, you know, it's a double-edged sword because on one hand, you're absolutely right. You know, people go in there and they're, they have expectations and they have an idea and it's like a shorthand. It's like you're able to sort of jump the line a little bit as a writer because, you know, you, you have, you know what the reader's expectations are, but then it's also a challenge. I mean, I'm lucky in that I have an editor who really understands this, but for a lot of writers, it's a challenge. You know, they'll say, well, people will assume they know how the story ends. Why should I read this book? And so it's a challenge for the writer you know, to write a story that, you know, convinces people that there's still, you know, value in reading the story, even though you think you know how it's going to end. But that's, you know, I've had one book to do that now. And so I think it makes it a little easier to convince readers to give it a try. But that first book, it's very hard to convince people, especially like, you know, the, the hunger um, had to do with the Donner Party, which was a story about cannibalism. So it was like two strokes <laughs> out of the gate. Yeah. It's funny because your answer was exactly what I was about to say. Uh, in the in the little bit of historical fiction I read, I feel like that first book that you read from an author, if they do it in a way that's satisfying for the reader, then they trust whatever's coming next. So, I think part of the reason that we were so, um, you know, uh, it, it was kind of a no brainer for us to read the deep was because we read the hunger and we appreciated it. So. The Deep was just like, all right, well, whatever's coming next from her, we know that it's of good quality. So I, I think you're you're dead on with that. Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm, I can't wait to listen to your review because I really have, you know, I'm a little nervous about what readers will think of this book. Because while it's like The Hunger in res certain respects, it's very unlike The Hunger in other respects. And, you know, you kind of hope that the people who enjoyed your first book will appreciate this book on its own merits too so i don't know if you want to discuss like what makes it different 
or the same from the hunger. You know, it's funny because when uh, the hunger came out before that, I had written a trilogy, which was very different in a lot of ways than the hunger and the deep in that it was more, I don't want to say paranormal romance because it really wasn't, but that was sort of the thing at the time, right? These big sweeping romances with Mm -hmm. these supernatural elements to them. And of course, the hunger is nothing like that. And so you wonder, oh, you know, are these people, I'd like, I didn't expect the horror community to embrace me at all because they really, they weren't crazy about paranormal romance. And I think I got lumped into that genre. And so they pretty much ignored my first three books. So I thought they'd ignore my fourth book. And I was so lucky that they didn't. And I was surprised that men read my book. I mean, because mm. men, of course, did not read my other books. Um, and so, you know, the deep is a little different. It's, um, you know, it's reflective of the time it was set in, which was the end of the Edwardian era. And, you know, it was a very romantic time. It was a very gothic time in a lot of respects. And so the story reflects that. I think it's more romantic than The Hunger, which was a little more, what's the word, rustic? I don't know. <laughs> you know, that was reflective of the West, mm-hmm. not the Edwardian era. Anyway, so it's, you know, I, I mean, I really like the book. I think it is successful in that it does evoke these very strong gothic vibes as you're reading it. But readers who are looking for the same type of book that The Hunger is, I think they'll find it's it's just different in certain ways. You're going to get a lot of responses to this. I know Livius has some strong thoughts on that. <laughs> so, okay. I'm, well, I, well, first, I want to say I'm glad that you said that because I couldn't think of a way to say like so it came the hunger came on our radar because it was a bram stoker nominee and we at that point read i think two of the five or three of the six books or whatever it was so we said you know what we might as well read these other three right so so we did and and we reviewed them and there was something about the hunger it's not that it didn't fall into horror but even then i thought to myself I'm a little surprised that this, not because of the quality of the book, but the type of story it is, that it wound up as a Bram Stoker nominee, and not not in a bad way. And and I'm glad that you said that it, it you know, maybe caught you off guard a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Um, but both of them are definitely horror. I just think that we've we've moved horror in a direction um, that that's a little bit away from gothic horror which is what I really think the the deep is. Um, and, and I'd like to see it go back because I'm a fan of gothic horror. And The Hunger in its own way, like you said, a lot grittier, maybe less romantic, which my other thought on that was that um, romance when you're unwashed for you know, months at a time is probably a little more challenging than it is aboard the Titanic. <laughs> um, it depends what your sense of romance is. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's yeah, well, well that, yeah. that's true too. So I guess I I don't want to make judgments on other people's taste, but um, for my for my own personal opinion, um, yeah. So I I, I like um, period piece horror, and that's one of the things that I think surprised me the most when we you know obviously we saw it on the Bram Stoker list. We looked into it. and I said, oh, this is kind of interesting. You know, it's the Donner Party, and and something about it felt like it didn't fit the direction that the horror community is going in. So I guess I wanted what I want to say is I'm glad that you're moving it into a different direction again well the whole thing with the book it's the first book the hunger and 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 the deep two you know they're multi-genre books i mean when when i was writing it and working through with the publishing house i don't think even they had a good sense of like you know is it a genre book or not a genre book i think they very much 
pictured it as mainstream fiction. You know, they didn't want it to be seen as historical fiction. And that's, I think this is going to really piss some people off, but it's for business reasons as, as well as historical fiction does. Yeah. It tends not to be like the big blockbuster book type of thing. So I don't think they saw it as hunger. I mean, it didn't have a, I'm sorry, as horror. It didn't have a horror cover or any of that. And I think they were a little surprised too that it was embraced by the horror community. But then, you know, once I started spending time in the horror community, I, I, I really feel very strongly that we're entering in like a new golden age of horror. And part of that is it's broadening. So when my first book came out, The Taker, which was also more mainstream fiction than anything else, um, I did... You know, I, I when you're an author starting out, you, you try to kind of get in good with a bunch of different writing communities. So, you know, I was part of thriller writers that was just starting at the time. And I was part of, you know, I joined romance writers. I joined mystery writers. And I also joined horror writers of America. But I didn't feel that the community embraced me at the time. And I think, and that was 10 years ago, that their view was maybe a little more narrow as to what horror was. And the difference between then and now is amazing. I mean, I think a lot of folks in the community now see horror as a big tent. And I'll tell you one thing, um, since The Hunger did so well, I've been getting a lot of blurb requests from publishers. And a lot of what they send me is not, it's more in the suspense realm, like part of the whole psychological suspense, which to me, when you think of like horror movies, a lot of movies are um, are really just suspenseful. It evokes that feeling of terror, and that's the definition for Horror Writers Association is that horror is a feeling, not a genre. And so you've got books that are, you know, more on the Rosemary's Baby end of things, spectrum, or, you know, where the if there's a supernatural element, it's very light and it's very questionable often, and you don't know until the very end of the book if, if it really was something otherworldly or it had more of a, a, you know, real life explanation. And I think that's a bit of, um, shows the broadening of, of the genre as well. I've, I've actually written a couple articles on this now. People, I do, you know, when you're promoting a book, when it comes out, they'll often ask you for, you know, give me a list of books people should read. And, you know, I'll, I'll look back to the books I've been asked to blurb and almost all of them fall into this, what some people are calling the horror adjacent category. Yeah, I, I so I'll agree with you that like horror in general. Um, I, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. Um, the definition is a little bit amorphous um, because, and and the way the way I personally look at it, and and over the years we've been doing this podcast for just about nine years now. Um, I, I'm sure that our personal definitions of horror have changed over time. But um, I feel like the horror genre or the the hardcore horror people, they're more they're more likely to embrace your book if one of two things is happening, either it's really high quality or it's really horror. <laughs> so, um, you know, and and so that kind of brings about some things that are kind of maybe fringe horror where there's like an element or like a thread that runs through it that's somewhat, um, like you said, suspenseful or thrilling or or just horrific um when the when the main story is pretty mainstream literary but if it's like really well done they'll be like yeah that's one of ours um or if it's just like 
Or if it's just like really gory, like that qualifies too. Like they don't go to the middle of the spectrum. They kind of hang out on what's happening on the outsides of the spectrum. Hmm. That's interesting. What do you have you guys read much CJ Tudor, for instance? No. No. <laughs> I think I speak for I think I speak for both of us. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pick up her, her most recent book, which I think is called The Other People. Um, I've read a couple of her books. And, you know, they're definitely suspense, but there's, you know, horrible things happen and, um, you know, there are thrillers, thriller books that, you know, are a little horror tinged and she's starting to get embraced more and more by the horror community. She's a British writer, big bestseller. And um, I think she's pretty, you know, representative of of what I'm talking about. Um, Unfortunately, I think there's a lot less Gothic fiction these days um mm-hmm. i love graphic fiction too i was like a little eight-year-old girl reading yeah. edgar Allan poe and it just imprinted on me so badly but um you know there's just been uh, well again i'm an old lady so over my lifetime there's been a lot of it written to the point where i think it's kind of slowed down and you know it's really hard to come up with something like original and fresh in such a straight jacketed uh, subgenre. <laughs> I love gothic, and so I'm really happy that this. Also, I tried to invoke a little um, Rebecca Daphne de Maurier's Rebecca in this book. So hopefully, like little little wisps of that came through. You know, where you're just not sure if what's going on is real or you know, or not. It, it occurred to me that when when you do write as part of an actual historical story, so not like within an event, right? So someone could write a World War II book and not touch on any real factual information. But when you use real people and you use real situations, how do you – I don't know if this is even the right way to ask it. How do you decide the level of care that goes into especially introducing supernatural elements into that story. Like I, we, we know that you have to take some liberties with dialogue and, and, you know, maybe what's going on in someone's head, but we have real situations and you're introducing supernatural elements. It, are, are you ever, I guess, conflicted by how much or by how they're introduced because these were real people in real situations? So first of all, you worded that beautifully, so respectfully and considerately. Um, <laughs> Yes, I really struggled with this at the beginning of The Hunger because, again, going back to my background, you know, truth is an important thing and you hold it up and you try. But then, you know, there were things that, you know, when you write fiction, especially when I'm not trying to just present a fictionalized version of actual events, but I'm trying to tell another story and I'm just sort of springboarding off the historical event that I really worried a lot about about the characters. So in The Hunger, it stays very close to um, the people who were actually in it. There's only a couple characters that were completely made up. And in The, in the Deep, very different because, um, you know, I had to take so much more liberty with the main characters. That just didn't feel right to impose that on a real person's life, especially since the Titanic is, this is going to sound weird, but it's such a much more popular disaster than the Donner (laughs) Party was. There's a legion of fans out there who I'm sure are going to come after me with pitchforks and torches at some point. 
and they find out what I've done. But so, for instance, there was a real woman who survived both sinkings, Violet Jessup. She was a stewardess on the Titanic, and she became a nurse on the Britannic. Wow. And it was really finding out about her that was the whole impetus for writing the story. But she's fairly well-known. Um, I mean, really, people have probably heard of her, but probably not that many people like know her whole life story. But I did feel it would be very disrespectful to try to impose all the things that happened to Annie Hebley, who is the main character now in the book, on Violet. Violet was a real person, and it was just too much. So Violet's in the book, and, and I'm projecting certain things onto her that she may or may not have actually been like in real life. But this is something I talk about a lot when I am on tour, for instance, um, you know, and that expectation. So if people really think this is a historical fiction book, well, it's not. <laughs> and second of all, though, when I think about it, historical fiction, even people who, um, you know, really want to toe the line on history, they are literally putting words in people's mouths <laughs> that they have no idea if that person ever said anything like that or, you know, even used that kind of diction or, you know, level of diction or anything. So, you know, I, I, I started to forgive myself a little bit <laughs> for the liberties that I was taking. <laughs> one interesting thing happened. I found out that no one was going to arrest me. <laughs> There's no fiction. Yes. Book. I could do whatever I wanted and nothing was going to happen. Um, uh, you know, I would have these nightmares at first with the hunger that I'd be doing a reading or something and someone would stand up out of the audience and point to me and say, I'm a member, I, I'm a descendant of one of the members of the Donner Party and I take offense with the way you're portraying my deceased relative. Nobody did that. At one um, event, a man stood up, pointed at me and said he came from Jim Bridger's hometown, and he didn't like the way I presented Jim Bridger in the book. <laughs> and what matters worse, he was a lawyer. But <laughs> I was lucky in that history is on my side, and so I actually had like a lot of facts I could throw out to him. And he came up later, and he said, yeah, he just, you know, what can he do? He's from the hometown. He felt like he had to defend him. I'm a little afraid that I am going to get like Titanic fans, you know, arguing with me about stuff. But the bottom line on these books is they're not meant to be, you know, very close representations of what, I mean, they've got supernatural elements in them for pediotic sake, you know, of course, they're going to be a little uh, stray from, mm -hmm. from the truth. <laughs> yeah, I think the biggest challenge you're going to overcome is people are going to want to know why Jack and Rose weren't covered at oh. all in this book, right? Yeah, I am kind of bracing for that. I do have um, <laughs> a little bit of, uh, I did a podcast. Uh, I have my own podcast, by the way. It's not a podcast like yours. It's not meant to, to you know, be an ongoing concern. I just record these episodes and talk about some of the history, the real history behind the books. Because I was finding a lot of people after The Hunger were saying that, that they were so curious about where the line was, how it blurred between you know, fact and fiction, that they were, you know, compelled to actually do research on the hunger. And so I thought, well, great, I go to all this effort to do these talks. A handful of people come to book events these days. Why don't I just record them? And then they'll have, you know, anybody can listen to them after the fact. So I've done two on the Titanic. One had to do with conspiracies, and the other one is just background on the Britannic. And I hope to do more. So if you have any questions, by the way, let me know, because maybe I'll do a podcast episode on them. I have to tell you that I think that's a brilliant idea, um, doing the podcast uh, and the 
the example I can think of recently that um, was uh, perfectly legitimizes why you would want to do that is the HBO series Chernobyl had a companion podcast. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but... Um, oh, I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. So, first of all, I thought it was a really good series, and um, it was just a really compelling way to look at what happened from a fictional but pretty faithful to his history kind of perspective. But they had a companion podcast for the specific reason of explaining why they made the choices they did with the narrative, and then also kind of clearing the air about what was real, what wasn't real, and if the thing wasn't real, why they chose to do that. So, um, yeah, if you didn't know about that, like, you just had such a brilliant idea to do that. And um, we'll definitely make sure that we promote that, um, uh, you know, in this episode. Oh, well, thank you. And thanks for the tip, because um, I think one of my future books is actually going to deal with Chernobyl, and I've been doing a lot of background reading on it. But that podcast sounds fascinating. It's wonderful. It's it's such a real good, like, kind of additional layer to what's going on in the show. Um, yeah, can't recommend it enough. Ooh. Good. One more thing to listen to. I um, was willing to bet money that if you continued on this path that we'd see Amelia Earhart. And now hearing that it's Chernobyl <laughs> kind of breaks breaks my heart a little bit. I'd like to do Amelia Earhart. That's come up. One thing that's come up a lot is Roanoke, um, and I actually plotted out the story, but um, the uh, it, publishing world kind of feels like right now the uh, audiences are more towards the 20th and 21st century, so, um, you know, that that previous errors are just not getting enough traction with audiences, so, so we'll see. Maybe one day there will be a Roanoke story. That's that's yeah, and I'm sure that we could spend a lot of time talking about like what what parts of history interest you and like what you what you're looking forward to, to, to writing about. Um, one thing, all right. So this is just something that um, it seems here. I'll set it up like this. It seems to me, from an outsider's perspective, that going from being an intelligence analyst to writing the the stories that you write is a bit of a change. Um, so. It seems like the skills and abilities that you built in that career have helped you prepare your stories. But is there something specific or, or how much does that help you be uh, good at uh, either research or in the writing process or, or anything like that to uh, to writing the, the types of stories you write now? You know, it really came. Uh, the point was driven home to me when I was working on The Hunger that. Um, the skills that I had developed over 30 years as an analyst really helped me manage complex um, uh, stories. You know, so if you think of the hunger, uh, it's different from some historical fiction that people might tackle in that, you know, it was very precise. It was very precise dates along a very precise geographic line. Uh, it was over 100 people or about 100 people in the wagon train. And so that's a lot of facts to have to know and juggle and handle very precisely. Um, some people might have run away screaming, but, um, you know, I, 30 <laughs> years as an analyst. Um, I'd also been a researcher, a senior analyst for the RAND Corporation, where I handled huge studies. So it was nothing. I didn't bat an eyelash at it. And it wasn't until later, especially when I 
you know, every event, every con I did, people were coming up to me and like, how can you do that? How can I, you know, I want to write historical fiction. I have no idea how to do the research. And I realized that for a lot of people, it's a skill that they kind of stopped using after high school or college. But 30 years of doing it every day, it makes you, you know, you just kind of learn these shortcuts and that sort of thing. I did kind of pause a little bit when I thought of the Titanic, like, man, this is going to be a massive research project because it's exponentially bigger. Plus, the number of people who really geek out over the Titanic are so much bigger. Like James Cameron is going to be all over the inconsistencies in the book. <laughs> um, I could wish. I could only hope that. So, so that's part of it. But I got to tell you, when I sold my first book, which was over 10 years ago, and at that point, I mean, again, I'd say I'm an old lady. So I was 50 when I sold my first book. And I was a senior analyst in a very respected discipline <laughs> in my field. And when I told people that I had sold the book, and they were all like, oh, is it a scholarly book about peacekeeping and war? <laughs> I'm like, no, it's about magic and love. Uh, <laughs> the jump could not be bigger. <laughs> uh, you, you bring up something interesting. And so um, one of the things I recently re-listened to our review of the hunger to prepare for our conversation and one of the things i noticed about our general feelings about the hunger versus the deep was that it did seem like there was kind of a lot more going on and it was a much bigger story whereas the deep was really dialed more into maybe fewer characters and fleshing out the story more so um was that something that you did uh intentionally and if so was it a conscious choice based on either how much work it took or um, kind of the response to your to your fiction at all, or was that just something that it happened how it happened? Well, two things. One is um, the books are really about what the biggest issues of the day were at the time. So for the hunger, and honestly, for the hunger, I didn't realize it until after the fact. Mm. After I finished writing it, and my editor read it, she said, "Wow, you know, it's kind of funny." But, uh, you know, it was written during the 2016 presidential campaign. And so she said it just has these like echoes of what we're going through today. And so when I stopped to think about it, you know, the biggest issue of the day back then was Manifest Destiny. Right. It was the westward expansion. And um, but, you know, the westward expansion, you think about how it was taught to you in school. But what it really was about was a lot of the things that we're still struggling with today, intolerance. People were, were looking for religious freedom. They were trying to get away from neighbors they didn't like. They were driving the Mormons out. They were running roughshod over the Native Americans, and they were going to kick the Mexicans out of territory they actually owned. I mean, that was the whole thing with um, Lansford Hastings, the man who really promoted uh, migration to California. He was trying to get enough Americans to go there so that the U.S. government would seize the state and drive the Mexicans out like had happened in Texas. So it really struck me. Oh, and, and you know, uh, I feel, and I think some other folks who study the Donner Party feel the same way, you know, when you look at the, the numbers of deaths afterwards, there was big inequality among the family. Uh, one family had no deaths, and other families were wiped out. And it was because they didn't share. Now, why should they share, right? It wasn't a commune that was moving across the country. They were individual families. 
but they had really divided themselves up along economic lines. The richer families were kind of um, ostracized and clung together and pretty destroyed by the end of the wagon train. And the middle class families really sort of hoarded their wealth. And those were the ones that did the best at the end. And you know, a lot of people would say to me, oh, that's so terrible. If only they could have cooperated better, you know, more people would have come out alive. Well, you can kind of see, you know, if it's your family on the line, are you really going to be that magnanimous? But mm-hmm. when you think about what was happening in the country in 2016, it was such a mirror of that. So now I know to look ahead before I write the book, what were the big pressing social issues at the time? And during the end of the Edwardian era, it was two. It was class disparity which I could talk all day about this, and I'm really afraid I'm going to (laughs) ostracize parts of my audience at book events, but, um, and women's suffrage. So women's suffrage is pretty self-apparent how bad that was. But if you think of the deep in terms of women's suffrage, it just gets hammered over and over again. The crappy choices that all these women are facing, rich or poor, and how all their actions are driven by that um, narrow, you know, prescription of their lives. And then income disparity. It really is the, you know, millionaires, um, the first class passengers against the third class passengers and the crew. I'm kind of glad that you brought that up. I famously say on this podcast that I don't read nonfiction. Um, not not that I have anything against it. It just I, I I find it boring. So I learn a lot <laughs> through reading fiction books. Um, so I, I often um, do a little bit of research too. So I, I will say from this particular book, although I was familiar with the Titanic because you know, like everybody, I'd seen the movie. Um, <laughs> I was kind of fascinated by um, um, uh, William Stead and that the the case, the um, the name's going to elude me now, I don't have in front of you, Eliza Armstrong, yeah. I believe, case. Yeah. I did some research on that, and that that's some fairly crazy stuff. I mean, I don't want to get into the whole thing, but had I have not read your book, this would have never been on my radar. And, and that's, you know, like I said, I, I learned from reading fiction books, which sounds very um, eighth grade, but <laughs> it's, it's, how, it's how my brain works. <laughs> Because, like I said, if you put out a nonfiction book about the Titanic, I'll be honest, it, it wouldn't. I probably wouldn't have picked it up and read it. So, the Donner Party, the Titanic, um, whatever you do next, if it follows the same kind of thread, um, you know, can can also serve to bring um, knowledge to people and not just entertainment for the sake of entertainment. I love reading books because they entertain me. Great stories entertain me, and every once in a while, I, I wind up, you know, taking a thread from a book and tugging on it a little bit and learning something really interesting. Well, so I think a, a lot of what you're saying plays out for a lot um, of readers, maybe not all of them, but but definitely for the ones like me. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I didn't know anything about W.T. Stead either until I um, started doing the research on the book. So a couple things. I meant to bring this up, other point up in in my last little diatribe, but I got carried away. And that is um, you're only seeing about two-thirds of what I've written for both books, huge amounts of, of writing end up getting hacked out because at the end of the day, you know, these are supposed to be thrillers and more page turner than, you know, this big regurgitation. I mean, my training is in literary fiction. And so I do tend to write character driven fiction, which I love. 
and and hopefully that comes out in the books, but they still have to have that thriller edge to them, so they have to move. So there's a lot of stuff that I think if people really got into the story and the characters, they'd probably love reading the 200 pages that ended up on the floor. But but <laughs> there's a lot then that, yeah, ended up getting pulled from it. So, and this was the other thing that I really learned um, doing the research for the Titanic. So there's so many resources out there for, for Titanic. You can easily get lost in this. And, and I'm a very uh, disciplined researcher. Uh, you have to be in my line of work. So um, I didn't get lost, thank God. But uh, I read little bios on every single person on the Titanic, first, second, third class, and crew. Wow. And it was amazing. Every single one of them was fascinating. You could, it really drove that point home to me that every person, you could probably write a book on every person on the planet. There's something about them that is you know, that really deserves that kind of um, investigation and exploration. And it really, I just had so much respect for so many of the people who were on that ship. Unfortunately, you can only focus on a few of them. I tucked in a couple of the other interesting ones. Uh, you know, you, well, you read the book, so you know there's like um, uh, telegrams and that sort of thing, and, and characters that just sort of get pulled into a scene that hopefully will intrigue people enough that they'll go and look them up because every single one of them had an amazing, amazing life. Stead was crazy. You know, they um, said he was the, and I feel like I was pretty faithful to him from what I could read about him. But when the ship went down, they said he was the most famous person to die on the Titanic. And how many people know his name today? Right. Yeah. So you had said that you like historical fiction. So now we're going to put you on the spot and ask you to throw out some great historical fiction books for, for our listeners and potentially for us. Oh, gosh. Well, one of my favorites is a book called The Dress Lodger by Sherry Holman. And it came out a little bit before my first book did. Uh, it's a great book about a young girl who has to be a, a prostitute in order to survive in London. And dress lodger refers to a term for prostitutes who kind of rented fancy dresses from pimps in order to draw a more upscale client. And the this young girl's baby has a heart um, deformation. And she ends up um, kind of going in cahoots with a doctor who's been disgraced because he he kind of got caught up in the whole, um, you know, cadaver, have, grave robber thing. And so she ends up partnering with him and finding him cadavers to um, train his students on if he'll save her baby. And it's just a really great look into London. It, actually, it wasn't London. It was Sunder, Sunderland um, and um, Monmouth. I forget exactly the name of the town, but during a, a plague outbreak. So it's a great book to read right now, especially. Um, trying to think. There's so many. I love Emma Donahue's historical fiction, especially her earlier ones. And she did a book called Slammerkin, which is, again, about a prostitute. Women have such great role models in literature. Mm -hmm. Um and it was about a prostitute, a woman who ends up getting kind of thrown into prostitution when her family disowns her, when um, she has a little indiscretion with a rag seller in order to get this pretty, pretty piece of ribbon. Um, anyway, but it, again, it's like such a great snapshot of London at that time. 
I guess I'm really drawn to see me, see me London for some reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, that, that goes back to that Gothic thing, right? Like, does anything Gothic happen that isn't in London? I mean, right. that's kind of, you know what I mean? Like, I think that's, that's immediately the, you know, the Jack the Ripper is what, what gets conjured up in, in people's minds like that London for, for great gothic stories so for me anyway i guess i shouldn't speak for others well i think you're right you're right that there's a challenge right a gothic novel that's not set in, in at least england right right yep all right so uh definitely usually when we do these interviews we ask the author to let us know if there's anything that you personally want to plug and i think uh i personally would like to know more about this podcast if it's available and if so how do people find it but also if there's anything else uh, of your own or of somebody else's that you think is worth mentioning um, before we let you go. So I do have a podcast. There's not that many episodes. I did four on the Donner Party, and I've done two so far on the Titanic. And I've got a couple more that I want to do on the Titanic, but I'm also open to answering questions. So if people want to email me or just anywhere, tweet me. And if they have questions on the Titanic or the book, there's a million great Titanic resources out there. I should probably do a list just of that. But um, the podcast name is Damned History, and it's available on Spotify and um, iTunes and, gosh, just about everywhere, I think. You can also get it right off my website, which is almakatsubooks.com. I do have uh, something new coming out next year, and that is my first spy novel. It only took me 10 years to sell one. and we can talk about that if you want when the day comes. Mm-hmm. It was not what I thought it would be, but I'm really thrilled to have had the opportunity to write one. And I think it's super twisty. I just can't wait till it comes out. Um, and then I'll, I think the plan is that I'll be alternating uh, historical horror one year, spy novel the next, if things work out okay. Um, I've also done uh, a few anthologies. Uh, I don't write a lot of short stories, so I don't do too many anthologies. But I did do the foreword on one that came out recently called Miscreations. And it's a collection. The premise behind it is monsters. Man into monsters, monsters into man. And I read all of the books and poems in it. And I have to say, I think it's an exceptional anthology. And the reviews and everything it's getting lately are tremendous. So if you like short stories and you like monsters, it's not really about monsters. It's more about men. I really urge people to pick mm. that up. And uh, I did a story in an anthology called Hex Life, which is stories of modern witchcraft. Not all modern because mine was set. It, mine's a, sort of a fantasy. And that came out back in October. And it's all women authors. And that also got some pretty good reviews. So the one thing I also wanted to throw out there, though, is if you like Gothic, there's a book coming out in early April that you should really keep your eyes open for. And it's called The Ancestor by Danielle Trussoni. And that name is probably familiar to a lot of your listeners. She wrote Angelology. I think it was a little over 10 years ago. It came out shortly before my first book came out. It was a big bestseller. She's um, written both nonfiction and fiction. She does podcasts and all that stuff. But I did get a chance to read The Ancestor, and it's a very gothic tale. And it is amazing. Um, The writing is both cozy and familiar, and yet it goes into a completely unexpected, 
And really for a writer, and if you guys read it and you want to review it, I'd be happy to talk to you about it because I'd love to share my thoughts with some with folks about it. And Danielle and I are friends, so she already knows what I think about it. Really daring thing for a writer to do. And I don't want to talk, say too much about that because it would be a spoiler. But I, if you guys read it, I'd love to hear what you think about it. I'm just amazed. I don't think I would have been as brave as she was. Wow, that sounds uh, awesome. And sometimes we have authors on as guest reviewers, so let's keep that in our back pocket. Um, yeah. <laughs> Alma, thank you so much for taking um, some time out of what I have to imagine is a busy schedule to talk to us. It was a wonderful conversation, and I think I speak for Livia's when I say we could just keep going on and on. But uh, definitely, thank you so much for, for joining us. Well, thank you. This was so much fun. You guys do an awesome job. Great interview, great book. Um, I think I don't think we mentioned she's on tour, so hit up her website um, and you can catch her in. I guess I can just run it down in Texas, Colorado, Utah, Washington D.C., and Missouri, Ladue, Missouri. That's um, my favorite town in Missouri. Maybe yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I know nothing about Ladue, Missouri. Let's but, hope she um, makes it out of Ladue, Missouri. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So uh, great stuff, though, man. Uh, yeah, and definitely I will be. I know that I'm caught up on all my podcasts. So right now, the thing I'm going to go is I'm going to listen to uh, her podcast, Damned History, and catch up on all of the little details that tie into uh, the hunger in the deep. Because I'm so excited to like get a little bit of like a director's cut, like you know, extras information about uh, the process for those books. You know what? It occurred to me while we were talking to her. She's got. She said almost two hundred pages of the deep that didn't make it into the final. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the final product. Like we should have. Like someone should invent like the author's cut. And I know there's problems, right? Because someone else owns the rights to publishing it and stuff. But wouldn't it be nice to be able to get the author's cut of books? Like a new edit. You know, like everyone. Well, everyone makes a huge deal about like the director's cut, right? A director's cut comes out of a movie. What were we talking about recently? You were telling me the director's cut was really good. Dr. Oh, Sleep. Dr. Sleep, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it'd be nice if we can get author's cuts of books. I only know of that happening like one time and it was um, Stephen King and it was the the first book in the, the Dark Tower series, The Gunslinger. Yeah. That's, like I uh... think there was a... Well, if you think about it, the publisher is just going to publish the same book again and get more money for it. So why wouldn't they do that? You would think. You would think. But who knows? Who understands the mysteries of the publishing world? Yeah. There's probably some like historical horror that could be written about the publishing world, too. I'm sure. I'm sure there is. Maybe I'll, I'll cover that uh, in a few years. Um, so great book. Great uh, interview. Uh, up next, we have... That Left Turn at Albuquerque by Scott Phillips. Uh, very much looking forward. I know you already started it. Um, I am a little behind on this one, but that's going to be our uh, our next book review. Yep. That's going to wrap it up for this one. Uh, thanks for joining us for back-to-back episodes, the, the review and the interview. Um, join us next week for Scott Phillips. Until then, I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading.